Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. Uh, this is episode 317, in case you're wondering, and I am very glad that you decided to join us. Thank you for coming along. So, um, a few weeks ago, something of a firestorm was caused in evangelical circles when Alistair Begg, who's been a uh, faithful preacher of the gospel for many years, gave some advice to a woman about attending a a wedding and wedding reception for her grandchild, who was either trans or marrying a trans. So it was a it was a perverse wedding, and Alistair Begg encouraged uh, this woman, as an act of kindness, to attend, get a gift, that that sort of thing. And of course, there was an uproar about this, and for a few days, people were wondering, well, maybe. Maybe it was the heat of the moment thing. Maybe he just misspoke. Maybe he thought he was doing a kind thing. But then a short time later, a few days later, Alistair Begg clarified that he was not going to take that advice back. He wasn't going to walk it back. He was uh, sticking, sticking to the advice. Now, on the one hand, you don't want to wad up years and years and years of faithful ministry and throw it away. Okay, Alistair Begg has been a faithful minister for a long, long time. You should not want want to wad it up and throw it away. But still less should Alistair Begg want to wad it up and throw it away, and I'm afraid that that's what he's doing. Let me um, appear to change the subject for a moment, but I'm not changing the subject. I'm just providing an illustration. Let's say that you've got a politician, your congressman or somebody, who has been touting for years that he's the pro-life candidate. He's staunchly in favor of uh, life. He wants to defend the unborn, etc. He's run for years on that ticket. And then suppose that he proposes a bill that has carve-outs, and the carve-outs would be making exceptions for pregnancies that were the result of rape or incest. Now, there are two things here. I believe a consistent pro-lifer, what I call a smash-mouth incrementalist, could support a bill that outlawed abortions except for rape and incest, but he would always always be having to uh, issue a signing statement or make a statement alongside of it. This is clearly a good start, but it's not enough. We're not going to be done until we get rid of this rape and incest uh, business. A a pro-lifer could do that, and that's a tactical decision. But let's say this this politician that we're talking about is saying something like, no, I want rape and incest exceptions to be permanently part of our law. Forever and ever, I want us to allow abortions in case of rape and incest. Now, if someone like that, if someone says something like that, uh, then what he's doing is he's revealing that he does not know what we've been talking about at all. If a child is conceived as the result of a crime, there are three people involved. There's the father, there's the mother, and there's the child. The father is the criminal. There are two innocents, the woman and the child. What sort of sense does it make to execute the child for the crime of the father? If someone argues for executing the child for the crime of the father, then what they're doing is they're revealing that they don't believe the unborn child is in fact a child. And if they don't believe that the unborn child is in fact a child, 
what they're revealing is that they have never, ever been pro-life. They, they, just, they just don't know what's going on. Now, back to Alistair Begg. If you go to a wedding where two lesbians are marrying or two homosexual men or somebody's marrying a tranny or two trannies are marrying, you know, some, let's say it's something confusing, something complicated. And then you are, you go to the reception and you deliver a nice gift and you do it as I'm sure Alistair Begg thinks he's doing it because you want to show kindness. You want to reach out to the lost. You want him to repent of his sin or her sin or its sin, but you want them to know first that you were being winsome and kind. All right. Because you think it's going to be off putting if you say, I have to stay away. Because what you're doing is dishonoring God, dishonoring creation, dishonoring your own sex, dishonoring whatever sex your your other uh, started with, and dishonoring all the guests. You're dishonoring everybody. Now, if you say that and you stay away, it's going to be seen as censorious and off-putting. But here, let me let's change the uh, scenario. Let's say. And um, I hesitate to do this because we live in such weird times that any outlandish example that you try to come up with is sure to be <laughs> sure to be realized in real time by somebody. But suppose you got an invitation in the mail, nice inscribed invitation, and it was a man announcing his divorce from his wife of thirty years, and he wanted to introduce everybody at this reception that he was hosting to his new girlfriend. Okay. He's been, he's been married for 30 years. He's leaving his wife and he want his new, his girlfriend has um, just moved here from another city. None of his friends know her. He wants to introduce her. And so he wants a divorce. Welcome the new girlfriend reception. Now, what is required according to Alistair Begg's logic? Well, you'd have to go, right? You should go. Should you show him kindness? Well, yes, but you're not, yes, you should show him real biblical kindness, but biblical kindness does not consist of lying to people about what they're doing. Kindness is telling people the truth. But for the sake of an ostensible kindness, should you go to this man who's deserting his wife? No, you'd see instantly that this man is not just introducing you to his new girlfriend. He's backhanding his wife. He's insulting his wife. And kindness to him is cruelty to her. It just boils down to that. Kindness to him is cruelty to her. Now, in this tranny wedding that we're talking about, that Alistair Begg urged the grandma to go to, I don't know the particular people involved, but I know that the kindness that he was urging her to show to the one getting married, was in fact cruelty to any number of other people. And that, that's because God's law is the ultimate kindness. God knows how to protect us from ourselves. Always will be God. So, continuing on with the podcast, episode 317, we continue to study the New Testament sins, and we continue to call our study Hamartiology. Our word in this week's lesson is katagonosko, katagonosko, and it means to blame. Katagonosko, and it means to blame. 
Now, this is another one of those words which take on a sinful hue or not, based on what the direct object is. If you're blaming that which is truly blameworthy, according to the Word of God, then of course that would be no sin. It's not a sin to blame the blameworthy, unless of course you're doing it in an obnoxious way, unless unless there's something wrong with the adverb. If you are blaming people for being righteous, then of course that would be a sin. And if you're doing something blameworthy and are consequently blamed for it, the blaming is not a sin, obviously, but it was a sin that called that blaming forth. So we are right on the we're right on the line with this one as we are looking at this third scenario, doing something which is blameworthy. Okay? This is in Galatians 2:11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. He was to be blamed. Peter's sin here, along with the sin of Barnabas, is named by Paul in that context as the sin of hypocrisy. They would eat with Gentiles under some under certain circumstances, but would withdraw from them because certain men from James had showed up. So, to be clear, our word here is not referring to a sin as Paul apportions blame, but it is referring to a sin on Peter's part. He was to be blamed. He was blameworthy. To be blamed means that it's a reflexive action. The other place where the word is used has the same flexibility. It all depends on the reason for the condemning or the blaming. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. So, if I am blameworthy and my heart condemns me, then the sin is that condition of blameworthiness. When Peter sinned by buckling uh, before the men from James, it was that sin of giving way to them that caused him to be blameworthy. And that, uh, the word for that is katagonosko. Okay, so our book uh, this time around is a book by J.I. Packer, and the book is called God Has Spoken. God Has Spoken. Now, the, um, this is a book that Nancy and I read together. One of, the, one of the things we do in the morning is, is we, in our devotional time, we, I do my reading and she does her reading. And then after breakfast, we have a few things that we read through together. Uh, some scripture and um, the prayer list that we work through. And, and we read one or two other books uh, besides. Sometimes devotionals, some, you know, we just read different books. Sometimes we read a uh, regular old book book, and uh, that was the case here with this book, God Has Spoken by J.I. Packer. This is Packer's book on scripture, on inerrancy, on infallibility, on hermeneutics, and the appendices include the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and also uh, an adjacent statement on hermeneutics, on biblical hermeneutics. This book is a very fine book. Um, Packer is someone who knows how to make systematic theology readable. It, he's, his prose is not turgid. It's lucid. It's well put together. He thinks very clearly. He's a very orderly thinker. And 
uh, if you want a book that would really shore up your confidence in the Word of God as God's absolute truth, and also would fill in some of the cracks or answer some of the questions that you may have had about the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, this, um, this book is for you. Now, the, I do want to um, add one caution here, uh, and this is, this, is a, this is a small wart on the forehead of a beautiful woman. Um, the book is a very good uh, book, and I don't know who is responsible, was responsible for this, but Jaya Packer was an Anglican, and the book is very much written sort of in an Anglican context. He's quoting Ang- Anglican formularies. He's writing, I think, trying to shore up a right, a right understanding of Scripture in the Anglican circles and so on. So it's a very Anglican uh, book, but you can, you can deal with that. You're grown up. But because of that, there's a section where he's talking about the ministry, and there's a sentence that makes it very clear that he's talking about Anglican ministers, men and women, both. Now, I thought, huh, that was very odd. And so I did some research on it. And this book was, uh, this is the book that I've, uh, that Nancy and I read is the Crossway edition. And it was um, published just within the last few years. It was um, recently done. And, but the book was written decades ago, back in the 60s or 70s, I think. And so I rummaged up um, the text or an image of that section of the book as Packer originally wrote it, and the ordination of women is not there. So somewhere between Packer's initial writing of this book and this recent edition of it put out by Crossway, women got into the ministry. And I really hope I really hope that that didn't happen in the Crossway editorial offices, but somewhere it happened. And one of the, this is one of the things that we're going to have to uh, be on our our toes about. You've heard about deep fake videos where you know so you have a deep fake porn or deep fake uh, where famous people are being represented as being involved, saying things they shouldn't say or saying things that are going to alienate their base or doing things that will alienate everybody. One of the things we're going to have to be careful about is use of the memory hole when it comes to Christian publishing. George Orwell's estate, of all people, uh, recently authorized the retelling of 1984 from a feminist perspective. And that kind of thing is just enough to make you want to start shouting and throwing things. You're going to memory hole Orwell's 1984? Well, we're going to have to be aware. Uh, you know, people are going to want a memory hole C.S. Lewis's essay on women as can't be priestesses, for example. They're going, to, they're going to want a memory hole things like this. So be on your toes. If you, if you read something from some stalwart, you know, uh, you know a reprint of B.B. Warfield, and he's extolling the value of gay pride parades, for example, you should suspect something. Mm-hmm.